On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for music that comes from sledding accidents. Today we're going to do something a little different. We are not going to do trivia. We're doing kind of a mini episode, and so Joe and I were kind of talking. We're we're both in our... uh, our self-quarantines and getting a little cagey. We figured maybe some of you guys are getting cagey too. So we were going to, uh, we decided let's try to find a topic uh, that maybe has to relate to isolation or maybe an album that was created while people were in their own quarantine of sorts. So we uh, went ahead and picked a topic and wrote it in less than 24 hours and are recording it. So we just want to do something, you know, something for you all who are, who are uh, waiting this out and hopefully hoping for the best possible outcomes for everybody who's out there and that most people can avoid getting sick. Just a little bonus for you. And we're also going to have songs at the end like we normally do. We're not going to have two each, but we have a couple songs picked. Yep, a couple songs to kind of get you through the long, lonely days of looking out your window. All right, I think we're ready to get started. Let's do it. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Isolation causes people to do funny things Sometimes brilliant, sometimes mad, often both Joe and I are both under the recommended self-quarantine As we are waiting for this pandemic to hopefully quickly subside We started thinking about albums that were made while in confinement Many came to mind quickly. The Rolling Stones, recording Exile on Main Street while holed up in France, avoiding tax penalties. Of course, that is less like quarantine and more like a weekend at Caligula's. Bonavir's post-breakup self-induced retreat in a hunting cabinet turned into For Emma Forever Ago. Songs of Pain by Daniel Johnston was recorded in his parents' basement as his bipolar swings made social engagements tremendously difficult. Or the majority of Cat Power's moon picks, written during a terrifying hallucinatory nightmare while left alone in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And of course, David Allen Coe, Charles Manson, that psycho guy from Burzum, and countless hip-hop artists making records while incarcerated. And while these are all pretty good examples of people being quarantined and making music, we remembered Camper Van Beethoven and their version of Tusk. As I recalled, the band got snowed in at a cabin somewhere in the depths of the California mountains in the late 80s. To stave off boredom, the band did a track-by-track remake of Fleetwood Mac's maligned, bizarro, AOR classic Tusk. Speaking of quarantines, during the Fleetwood Mac recording session, Lindsey Buckingham quarantined four pounds of cocaine into his nose. Camper Van Beethoven, meanwhile, got through most of the tracks before the thaw, stashed the tapes, and went about their merry way. 
Many years later, about to embark on a reunion tour, the band found the tapes, cleaned them up, added and recorded new bits, and then released the record. We both love Camper Van Beethoven and Tusk, so we decided it would be a good exercise in exploring what happens to bands when cabin fever sets in. So today, break into your emergency vodka, settle into your confinement, and check your supply of toilet paper as we cover the bizarre tale of Camper Van Beethoven's Tusk. Before we embark into the Tusk remake, we want to delve into how Camper Van Beethoven came about and what they'd done to that point. In the 80s, in California, punk rock was already starting to sound defeated, and the L.A. punk scene in particular was being taken over by skinhead thugs, and shows were becoming more and more violent affairs. And not the fun kind of violent, like the Sex Pistols and the Bad Seeds, who would fight crowds only after being pelted by rocks and garbage. At the same time, Around the country, a small wave of punk offshoot bands were being formed. Bands who had an appreciation for a lot of what that current punk scene rail- was railing against. An acknowledgement of other genres from around the globe, as well as a sense of absurdity and humor. Bands like the Violent Femmes, They Might Be Giants, The Knitters, which was X's side project, even the Butthole Surfers, and maybe the most diverse of all of these, Camper Van Beethoven. Camper Van Beethoven formed when a few other bands fell apart and restarted with many of the same members, with its classic core lineup being David Lowry, Victor Krumenacher, Jonathan Siegel, Chris Mola, and Chris Peterson. The sound that most defines the band for me is Jonathan Siegel's violin, Victor Krumenacher's bass, and David Lowry's vocals. Nothing has ever quite sounded like those three all playing at once, either before or since. They were able to meld sounds from the 14th century with Eastern European folk music, all the while blending in the specials, Led Zeppelin, and Alice Cooper. From 1985's debut album, Telephone Free Landslide Victory, through their fourth album, 1988's Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart, the band made songs that produced thoughtful glee punctuated by excellent musicianship. By the fourth album, the band had signed to Virgin Records and used a producer that Siegel had some issues with. Siegel had always been known for being a little eccentric and may well have been on the spectrum. He had no issues making his hatred of the producer known to all, as well as his feeling about David Lowry's self-imposed new role as the band's absolute leader. When asked in an interview how it felt to be signed to a major label, here's how Siegel described his response. And remember, this is while he was with the band. And while they were getting along. Yes, (laughs) yes, this is during the good years. I would reply that I was working with a producer that I didn't like and tell them the reasons why. Then they would ask, who is writing most of the material? And I would say, at this point, David is writing all the material because what the rest of us write, he doesn't want to do. So we end up going in the direction of the stuff he wants to do. The band released one more delicious album, Key Lime Pie, But by that time, Jonathan Siegel had been kicked out of the band, and that signature sound was gone. Siegel made two solo albums and fronted a couple bands, while Krumenacher formed a very interesting band called The Monks of Doom, and then started a late record label so that they could release their own albums exactly as they intended them. David Lowry went on to mainstream success with his next band, Cracker. 
And David Lowry is, has a reputation for being kind of a jerk. And he wasn't incredibly gracious when getting Siegel out of the band. I think he just called him and did it over the phone. And they'd been playing it for a long time. They'd been pretty close. And one of the reasons he said... Well, one of the first reasons he said was, I just don't want to make music with you anymore. And then Siegel said, but I want to make music with you. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> and then David Lowry said, well, we're going to move away from a violin. We're not going to do violin anymore. It just doesn't really fit where, where we want to go with the band anymore. And then after Siegel's out of the picture, David Lowry brings in a new violinist to play on Key Lime Pie. Jeez. Sort of cruel, but Jonathan Siegel also sounds like he would be really difficult to be around sometimes. He toured with a lot of other people, and one of them was Sparkle Horse, another great band. He toured with them for at least one tour. And after the tour ended, according to him, he said he went home and he just sort of waited for Mark Linkus to call and say, hey, let's go, let's go back out or let's go to the studio and cut a record. Nobody ever contacted him again from that band. <laughs> Jeez. I can personally attest to David Lowry's cruelty. Well, I've seen it twice. I saw Cracker at like a festival. It was really early on. I was probably on their fir- around their first record. Mm-hmm. They were playing and like two or three songs in, he just stops the song, takes off his guitar and heaves it right at the drummer. Not at the drum set, at the drummer who kind of ducked out of the way. And then he stepped on the microphone and said, you're fired and walked off stage. And the second time, I was going to Cracker Show, and I was out behind the venue. I don't know, maybe I was waiting for somebody. And he and the guitarist, Johnny something. um, Applesauce? Yes, yes, Johnny Applesauce, walk out, and he asked if he can bum a cigarette. And I I said, sorry, I don't have any, I don't smoke. And he just looked at me and said, what kind of person goes to a show and doesn't have a cigarette? And then just kind of walked away from me. Now, on to a little bit about the source material itself. Fleetwood Mac could honestly claim to be the world's biggest band in 1978. Just a year after its release, the soft-pop soap opera Rumors had sold 10 million copies. The band completed one of the most lucrative stadium tours of all time and had almost complete control of and unlimited resources for their next record. Mick Fleetwood had decided that the new album had to be a double album most likely because that would be twice the money. When Warner Brothers wouldn't buy the band a new studio, they just used royalties to build one anyway. Even with a custom studio, the label still charged the band for the sessions, which resulted in the most expensive record ever recorded at the time. One million dollars, or equivalent to about 3.5 million today. That's a lot of marching Trojans. Mostly left to his own devices, Lindsey Buckingham was diving deep into his three biggest obsessions at the time. The Talking Heads, Cocaine, and Cocaine. He was desperate not to make a Rumors 2 and wanted to be relevant to the post-punk crowd. This led to songs that were more experimental. Well, experimental to the Fleetwood Mac crowd. And that were often self-indulgent, strange, half-formed, and awkwardly arranged. The sessions were described as a cocaine blizzard, and one that is more or less responsible for the quick demise of Dennis Wilson, who is Christy McVie's beau de jour. Buckingham maniacally messed with all the aspects of recording, often without making any sense at all. 
One time, he came to the recording session immediately after freaking out and trimming his hair with nail clippers. A million bucks and ten months later, the band paraded out Tusk in 1979. The album is a bit of an enigma. Sure, it is full of left turns and overbloated, but it wasn't without hits. Stevie Nicks' Sarah and Christy McVie's Think About Me were relatively big singles. And the title track, complete with the USC marching band, is one of the most recognized and beloved songs in the Mac's career, as well as another top 10 single. Even financially, it wasn't a total disaster selling 4 million copies by 1981. Still, critics and fans were initially mostly disappointed. Not helping was the fact that the album upon release was $16 commercially, which translates to $56 in today's money, so the price of one record store day single. A colored vinyl might come with a slip mat. It probably comes with a slip mat. Warner Brothers was probably the most disappointed party of all, sensing that the album failed to capitalize on what might have been the biggest record of the late 70s. Not helping was the 112-date Tusk World Tour, which proved to be a textbook in frivolous spending, including cases of Don Perignon every night, and Stevie Nicks requiring custom-painted hotel rooms in each city she went to. The band explains that by the end of the tour, they could barely stand the sight of each other. One story tells of Buckingham pulling up his jacket and mockingly twirling like Stevie, Stevie Nicks' famous shawl dance. She ignored his ridiculing, to which he responded by kicking and throwing his guitar at his ex-wife. What a gem. It's like David Lowry. Lots of throwing of instruments at people this episode. (laughs) We're only talking about two bands. The album, its unusual sound and legendary cautionary story, has aged well, and is now regularly regarded as the interesting album in Fleetwood Mac's catalog. The record has become embraced, if not beloved by a younger generation of rockers. And we looked this up and there's something, there is an unbelievable amount of people who, who cover this record or songs of this record. People we really like, like Bonnie Prince Billy, Smog, R.E.M., The Decemberist, Best Coast. It has really become a popular record, even though it was not when it first came out. It's very strange and, and very much a shift from what you know, independent bands used to really distance themselves from the classic rock giants, and now they they don't so much. So one of the aficionados was Camper Van Beethoven's bass player, Victor Krummenacher, who proclaimed the record as one of the ultimate bass player records. He suggested recording the album for Shits and Giggles when the band was snowed in. Or, so we misremembered. Well, apparently some 18 years on, our recollections are a little questionable. As we started digging up some info on the album, we uncovered a few different origin stories. Most start with the band hanging out at a cabin in California's Mammoth Mountain to work on songs for a new record sometime in 1986 or 87. It was snowing heavily and the band decided to use a trash can lid as a sled. And when I say the band, I mean that three of them would pile on the makeshift toboggan at one time. Unsurprisingly, this activity eventually led to drummer Chris Peterson breaking his arm. Peterson went to the emergency room and scored some pretty sweet pain meds. Owing to the fact that Victor Krumenacher's dad was a pharmacist who spoke with the ER doctor. The band bought a bunch of beer on the way home. Getting snowed in and on serious pain meds and booze, 
they decided to record the entirety of one of the two albums that was in the cabin. With a drummer breaking his arm, they should have done a Def Leppard record. Am I right? Pyromania? <laughs> I wonder if that was the other record in the cabin. Like, come on, there's a natural choice here. <laughs> the band would play along with the vinyl copy and record the results. At one point, there was a major argument about continuing the endeavor with several band members wanting to start writing their own material rather than recording someone else's. The deciding vote belonged to a member who was sitting in his snowed under car with a very mad girlfriend. Band members would occasionally take a shovel and dig out to check on the couple who would either be in a screaming fit or in the midst of physical reconciliation. Ultimately, the band carried on and decided to finish what they had started in Tusk. Of course, other stories are out there as well. Beyond this first story or our recollection of the bass player making the suggestion to a track-by-track tribute, other interviews have it that it was the owner of the cabin, a friend of the group named Sunshine, who proposed the concept. She thought the boys ought to do a countrified Emmylou Harris-type version of Tusk, which was her favorite record. Yet others claim that David Lowry was already having his own special Mac attack and was quite interested in Buckingham's craziness well before getting stuck in the cabin. Whatever the truth is, and whoever's idea it was, it was generally agreed upon that the band enjoyed some of Peterson's pain meds and fired up the four-track recorder and started blasting the songs, but in the weirdest ways possible. After their lost weekend, the tapes were summarily misplaced and forgotten. And that was the end of it, until guitarist Greg Lisher found them again in 2000, when the band came together to compile an experimental rarities album, Camper Van Beethoven is Dead, Long Live Camper Van Beethoven, which mostly consisted of newly recorded material, so not really a rarities album at all. The band was gearing up for a reunion show and started messing around with the old tapes, cleaning them up by adding overdubs and electronic snippets. In 2002, the Slacker Doppelganger double album was released to Little Fanfare, complete with a parody cover showing a jackalope gnawing on a sandaled foot, as opposed to a dog pulling on the pant leg, which was on the original. The tribute album is fantastically funny, if not a bit overlong like its inspiration. Some tracks are almost carbon copies, sweetly adoring the Fleetwood Mac versions. Take a listen to the original and then the Camper Van Beethoven version of the opener over and over. Often the songs are straight-laced improvements on the Max songs. In particular, Storms is a fantastically swooning cover that, in my opinion, far surpasses the original with Lowry's deadpan emoting and a droning violin. Here are both versions.
That's Enough for Me sounds like it could just as easily have been written by Camper Van Beethoven as it was Fleetwood Mac, with its stomping beat and country noodling. The mariachi-tinged Honey High is a bit too twee, but squashes the self-importance of the original. Reverent covers are really the exception, as most tracks veer far from the early version, making them even more obtuse than their befuddled predecessors. Take a listen to both Sarah's. Then there are the total deconstructions, like Sisters of the Moon, which is Stevie Nicks at her most lacy foam mystical. The boys got the song, adding drum machine disco beats and replacing the inhuman Nicks vocals with inhuman computer vocals that start with a dedicated reading of the lyrics, but then start glitching like an orange juice-soaked speaking spell, gargling out random animal names and oddball quotes like Call Me Ishmael, and This One Goes to Eleven, and I Would Like Pork. Apparently, none of the band members wanted to sing the Glitz Witches song, so they had the computer do it. Some call her sister of the moon. Some say illusions are her game. Wrap her in velvet. And finally, the behemoth of a song, Tusk, is attempted. Not quite the jaw-droppingly raw masterpiece as its archetype, the cover is more of an LSD in the Kool-Aid freakout, complete with electronica swishes, sitar droning, world beat flourishes, tape manipulations, and flanging vocals. 
The song goes off the rails at 10 minutes, but is some of the funniest whacked out song smithing this side of the butthole surfers. several of the tracks are not more fun than the originals. The Legend Walketh in Line are two of my favorites on the first record, but sound like throwaways on the homage. At 80 minutes, the double album is a bit much and definitely drags in the second side, much like the Fleetwood Mac version. If there was anything you could count on for Camper Van Beethoven, it's music with a sense of humor that never took anything too seriously. But at the same time, could be strikingly poignant and sad before you realize that you're not guffawing anymore. The re-recording of Tusk lies somewhere between genius reinterpretation and a joke that might have gone too far. Much like Stevie Nicks. <laughs> Every bit of Tusk is exaggerated and even more extreme. Still, there are not many bands with the gumption, recklessness, and chops to record a track-by-track retelling of one of rock history's most puzzling and indulgent double albums. Certainly not many who would take the time to do it, Thank goodness for broken arms and snowstorms. Except there's one last thing. Remember how we mentioned misremembering a lot of information about the album when we first were reading about it in 2002? Well, apparently there was a reason for that. Namely, that the whole backstory about the recording being from a Snowden session from the late 80s is complete bullshit. Sometime in 2012, they eventually came clean about the whole thing. Lowry said on the Mark Maron show that it was all a big Andy Kaufman-esque prank, stating that the recently reunited band wanted to see if they could peacefully record in the studio and and warmed up by recording Tusk. Lowry has stated that they were inspired by Pussy Galore's 1986 complete album cover of Exile on Main Street and decided recording Tusk would be as good as any trial run for the reformed band. When it was finished, they agreed upon the ruse and presented it to music critics who ate it up. No one gave it a second thought. The joke was presented so deadpan, and the punchline never really publicized, that even reputable music sources like All Music still has the album as being recorded in the 1980s. For much of the recording, they actually used equipment they would have used in the 80s, like the drumulator machine. They sprinkled in bits about the overdubs, and the re-recording helped explain away any anachronistic quirks in the sound, and the band towed the line pretty well. One of the reasons I misremembered so much is because the band was so good at spreading misinformation. Turns out it works. Doubly well when not that many people are paying attention.
or care. <laughs> and that wasn't the only gag they pulled with the record. When Tusk was first being released, Camper Van Beethoven sent out to a bunch of journalists copies of a four-song demo and a press release claiming that it was actually an album by garage rock boy models, The Strokes. The press release suggested this side project was necessary to blow off some steam from the pressure of rock stardom. The presser even explained that the reason for the voice not sounding the same was because Strokes drummer Fabrizio was singing. Turns out he's a huge Mac fan. The Strokes and their lawyers were not happy. We started out trying to explore albums created in forced isolation, and of course we ended up talking about something totally different. An entity that exists somewhere between a prank, a tribute, and a calisthenic. Nonetheless, the album matters, if only for the reason that it actually exists, as improbable as that may be. Remember, there was a time when no self-respecting indie band would dare take a go at Fleetwood Mac, even with a sideways direction. Of course, now it is an old chestnut for independent bands to cover the biggest songs by classic rockers. And honestly, there's quite a bit of legacy of track-by-track cover albums. Some created an act of love, some made to cash in, some just for a laugh. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a record with as twisted a legacy as Camper Van Beethoven's Tusk. Ideal listening for social distancing, forced or self-induced. So I think we were both fooled initially by them saying it was originally recorded in 87, but I don't know why people wouldn't have been fooled. When we started this, I was 100% sure that this actually was from a snowed-in weekend. When you told me it was a, a hoax, I had no idea. But sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll chase squirrels and then we'll, we'll go down different roads and it's just as much fun as the thing we were actually thinking about recording about. So I wish this had been released on vinyl, and maybe it will someday for a record store day. It's really worth, it's really worth it, as long as it's not $56 like the original Fleetwood Mac version. This would be a perfect record store day release because you could press 500 and that's about all you would need. There's not that many people who are going to be into this. Yeah, I don't know how Camper Van Beethoven's legacy just sort of drifted away. And Telephone Free Landslide Victory is is as good a record from the 80s as anything by... I put it up against anything R.E.M. or the Pixies did, replacements. I mean, it's it's different. It's not straight rock and roll, but it's so good. Well, I think having a violin and not having it as this kind of token instrument that you bring in, but making it one of the most integral pieces of the band really opens up your musical vocabulary. But when they did like a country song, it sounded like a country band. It didn't sound like an indie band doing a country song. And I think that's a big difference. Same with ska. They could do ska better than most punk ska bands from that time. You name a style, they they have a song that's kind of in it, but they, it always sounded like Hamper Van Beethoven. I think that comes a lot from David Lowry, his lyrics and his, his singing and style is very unique. And none of what they did as far as branching out into other styles, it, it never really sounded forced. At least it didn't to me. Mm-mm. It sounded like these are things that we really like, and it was very sincere. Yeah, it's it's great stuff. I I don't think they're they're paid as much respect as, as they should. And I like Cracker, too. I don't like them as much as Camper Van Beethoven, but Cracker has some great stuff, too. They're a little bit more right down the middle. Yeah, yeah, they're much more accessible. They, I mean, obviously, they had a huge hit, or at least one. What was it? Low? What was it called? They had Low. Low was okay. really big. 
I thought their best song was Euro Trash Girl. It's like an eight-minute song. I love that song. I think I told you before, uh, you need to play that song back-to-back with Rod Stewart's uh, Every Picture Tells a Story. And um, there's a Ted Leo song, too, Ballad of a Sin Eater. All three songs are about bouncing around different European cities and just getting decimated by women and just running out of money. It's just, they all sound really good together. Speaking of songs, I think we should just play a couple songs. Yeah, let's play a couple songs. Okay, uh, so we kind of uh, talked a little bit before and we agreed on a theme for this. Kind of going with our isolation, quarantine type thing. We were talking about songs about being lonely or being distanced away from other people. So my first song is a song by Johnny Collier, or Collier, or Collier, or Kohler. Who knows? Anyways, it's Nobody Touches Me. I stumble down the sidewalk And the neon signs start blinking Guaranteeing happiness Just take ten years to pay Garbage cans and gutters reeking Children laughing, winos weeping Cadillacs keep rolling on their way Nobody looks at me Nobody sees me Nobody ever has my name Nobody Smiling lips on frightened faces Quiver in the lovely places Where the lonely people come Pretending to be gay The lights go on, the spell is gone Once again they wander home In the stillness you can hear them say Nobody looks at me Nobody sees me Nobody ever asks my name To the church to pray I'm lost and cannot find my way The altar's there The candles flicker Round the plastic saints The words won't come There's no use trying I can't waste the whole night crying I look up at the cross And wonder why Nobody looks 
Nobody sees me Nobody ever asks my name Nobody touches me All right, that uh, sad song is called Nobody Touches Me. It's a 1969 single uh, by Johnny Collier. I don't have the single. I have it on a comp uh, called The Beginning of the End, the Existential Psychodrama in Country Music, um, which is by the Iron Mountain Analog Research Facility, which we've talked about many, many times. as one of our favorite uh, reissue labels. That song, though, it's not necessarily about being isolated in your house. It's just it has that feel of just being totally alone and nobody wanting anything to do with you, and I think it... It just fit the mood. It's it's definitely one that pulls on your heartstrings a little bit. All right, and my song for this mini episode is by the Animals, and it is called Inside Looking Out. Sit here lonely like a broken man. Sell my time and doing the best I can. I wasn't bothered surrounding me, but I don't want your sympathy yet.
So that was The Animals with their 1966 song Inside Looking Out from their album Animalization. It's also on a Greatest Hits. I think it's the Greatest Hits Volume 2 of The Animals. It's a really, really tight song, like from beginning to end. It never really it never really stops. It's really intense from from start to finish. Eric Burden, who had a really cool voice, has this just intensity to it, and he even kind of has like a a snarl throughout, kind of like an Iggy Pop thing almost, before there was an Iggy Pop. It's a really cool song. I used to play it out in bars in Chicago, and though it was a hit, I think it got to number 12 in the UK and number 34 in the US. I hadn't really ever heard it before, maybe about 15 years ago, and I love it. And I'm not really a huge Animals fan, but I like this one a lot. It was introduced to me by my friend Zach, who I've mentioned, I think we've mentioned a few times on this show for doing things like that. He has a really great collection of 45s, and he he and I were playing out together, playing records at bars, and he pulled it out, and I the next day I ordered a copy. It's a great track. Tight, like you described it, is, a, is about the perfect word. It is just a wound, wound up two minute song or three minute song. It just, it just feels like it could pop at any moment. Yeah. It's like three minutes and 47 seconds. Gosh, is it that long? Yeah. It doesn't feel like it, right? No, it feels quick. Yeah. I really like Eric Burden, but that's not one you would hear on the radio. Of course, the only one you would hear on the radio is House of the Rising Sun, I guess. Nowadays, we got to get out of this place. Yeah. Or please don't let me be misunderstood. Oh, yeah. I guess he has a lot of play on the radio. Yeah, they've got a few. We hope you enjoyed this mini episode. You know, we're going to try to put out some shorter stuff, maybe some some stuff like this, where if you have an idea or if we think of an idea, you know, we'll just kind of try to get it get it done just to kind of kill some time, give you something to get your mind off the uh, troubles of the world. And, you know, we hope everybody's well and doing the best they can considering the circumstances. We want you to stay safe. And while you're staying safe and self-quarantine, don't forget there's there's a lot of people who um, who are hurting, you know, financially and need a little bit of help. If you can, maybe order a record from a record shop that will ship it to you, or maybe get on Bandcamp and and buy a record from a from a band, or do something to help artists who are really going to struggle without the money they can make from playing out and live shows. It's important. It's it's going to be a rough time for them. I know we're all kind of nervous and scared about it. I mean, I guess I could say I am. I do think that we, we need to band together. And, and if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you care about record stores and, and musicians and stuff. So, you know, take a break from from Amazon or stuff like that. You know, we always encourage you to shop local or shop small business or, or shop directly from the artist. Um, but it's triply important now with everything that's going on. So a lot of times if you call a record store and even if they don't have an online store, they'll still ship stuff. I know I've, when I've been out shopping out of town, I'll ask if they have something and if they don't, they say, I can order it. And I say, well, if you order it, do you mind shipping it to me? And most places are you know happy to do that. We'll try to do another one of these episodes within the next week or so. Yeah, if you have an idea, especially if you have a record that you think kind of fits the theme of being recorded in isolation or developed in isolation or somehow that really influenced its sound or whatever, I th- let us know. We came up with this one and it turned out to be <laughs> not real, fake isolation. So 
maybe you have a maybe you have one that actually was. So, anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Do we got social media? We do. Send us an email at highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. Anytime you want to chat with us, you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handles on both are Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have a Facebook page as well. Any way you want to get in touch, please do. All right. Well, we thank you for listening, and we will talk to you soon. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.